We are not defined by the shape of our eyes or the color of our skin. We are defined by who we are, what we believe in, what we dream about, and what we will achieve in the future. We promote equity, justice, and opportunity for Asian Canadian legal professionals. We are the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers. My name is Chilwin Chang. I am a litigator here at Ascendian Law, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I've always been wondering that as I kind of grew as a litigator, I didn't see too many Asian faces around me. And I'm not saying that anything's inherently wrong with that, but it was tough. Sometimes there would be issues around culture or perception or personal history that I would have loved to have spoken with a senior Asian lawyer about just to see kind of where things were at and learn the journeys and stories of people that came before me. But when I look around at the downtown Vancouver market and we're talking about the, the really high-end litigation boutiques or the, the partnership ranks or the senior ranks of the major law firms, we see a real dearth of Asian Canadian faces in the litigator ranks. Just go to any large firm, whether it's uh, any of the major firms here in Canada, uh, filter for the Vancouver office, filter for partners, filter for a litigations field, and the number of Asian faces you'll see are going to be far and few between, let alone the intersectionality that you'll find if you combined uh, Asian faces with women or, or, or people with disabilities or people who uh, uh, with a queer identity. I... It, it's important for us to recognize that um, though that there are highly, very high performing leaders in our litigation field. And I wanted to have a chance to speak with some of them and bring their stories here to this podcast. My guest today is Brian Chang, a lawyer at Owen Bird, focusing on commercial litigation and insurance defense. He is excited to be invited to join the shareholdership starting January 1st, 2021. Congratulations, Brian. Brian has appeared in the Provincial Court, Supreme Court, and Court of Appeal. He is also licensed to practice in Washington, where he has appeared before District Court, Superior Court, and Court of Appeal. Previously as a law student, Brian summered at the King County Superior Court in Seattle and externed at the Washington State Court of Appeals, and he was an assistant editor of the UBC Law Review during his master's studies here in British Columbia. In addition to his practice, Brian volunteers as a supervising lawyer at the UBC's Law Students Legal Advice Program and as a clinician lawyer with Access Pro Bono. He's also on the board of the Lawyers in Society and the Federation of Asian Canadian Lawyers of BC. I don't know how this guy has uh, spare time, but when he does have spare time, he s- loves his, his sports and outdoors. He snowboards, skis, bikes, and hikes. In his spare time, he volunteers as a swift water rescue technician and ground search member of South Fraser Search Search and Rescue. Brian, not only are you a lawyer, you're like a hero in the classic sense of the word. And we are so, so, uh, 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 so lucky to have you join us today. Hi, Brian. Hey, Chilwin. Um, Hey, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. Well, you know, as you as you probably caught in the the intro to this segment, you know, what I did to uh, to to get us on this track was I was just kind of bored and surfing around and I was going on to a couple of the websites. I won't call them out on this podcast, but all the major Canadian firms. And, you know, I would I was just just out of interest, like I run my own shop and I always like to see if the grass is greener on the other side. It never is. I like where I am. 
but I'm, I'm checking out the grass. So I'm, I'm going onto these different sites, filtering for the Vancouver office, filtering for partners, filtering litigation. And I'm shocked, quite frankly, uh, of how few Asian faces there are. And I went like, like we're not even 10%, like, not even 5%. I, you know, and you look at the stats can and we're minimum, tw- depending on how you classify Asians, like, like one out of five Asian or people in the lower mainland are classified as Asian. And mm-hmm. we're nowhere close to that amongst the senior ranks of, of commercial litigators in Vancouver. And so I'm really glad that you came, agreed to come down here and kind of talk about those issues. So I think the most important question that I wanted to start with is um, what is being Asian meant for your career? Wow, that's a that's a very broad and also a very deep question. Um, I guess for me, it's 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 an interesting um, journey that that I've had uh, in terms of being an Asian lawyer. Um, I, I, maybe I'll start sort of a little bit further back and uh, and explain that I grew up here in Vancouver, so I, I don't know if I fully realized until very late that uh, you know I'm a visible minority. <laughs> I mean, in, in Vancouver, um, Asians make up such a big part of the population that um, it's possible, as, as it was in my case, to really grow up here without having a full realization that um, there is such a thing as being a minority, there is such a thing as being discriminated against, and that the world is not a place that is necessarily as accepting um, or as diverse as as the people who um, I happen to be lucky to surround myself with growing up here in Vancouver. I mean, I, I grew up, uh, at, I went to um, Sir Winston Churchill uh, Secondary School, and I would say that probably Asians make up the majority of, oh, yeah. of the people in that school. Um, and, and so... Especially if you do the IB program. Which is exactly what I did. Yeah, exactly. I get it. I get you, man. I feel yeah. You. So, um, so really, I mean, growing up here, I don't, I don't know if I ever. I mean, obviously, I knew I was Asian, but I never realized that that was sort of um a conversation topic, even um of any concern, because it was just the way things were growing up. And and for me, I don't know if I really um realized that this was a topic of concern or that this was that diversity was um, something that was, you know, something that we needed to uh, look at as a society, um, that it was something that we needed to improve on and that it was something valuable to society um, until I went to law school. And um, I, I went to law school in Seattle. And I remember within, I think, the first one or two weeks of my 1L class, uh, we had a very nice guest speaker come in. And at the time, it was um, she was Judge Mary Yu of the King County Superior Court. She is now Justice Mary Yu of the uh, uh, Washington State Supreme Court, which is the highest appellate court in the state of Washington. And um, I remember... Um, she was introduced by, I think it was the associate dean of the law school, as uh, a judge who was a person of color. And when they used those words, person of color, that was probably the first time in my life that I recognized that there was something different about this person that I could identify with. And it was the first time that I really both figuratively and literally looked around the room and realized, wait a second, I'm a minority here. And that was a 
bit of a profound realization on my part because up until moving away and being in law school, and, and maybe part of it was because it was law school, I don't know. Maybe part of it was because it was Seattle. That probably was the case because I think the demographics of Seattle are different from the demographics of, of Vancouver. But um, that was sort of the first time I, I realized that, um, you know, I'm different uh, than the majority of the room and that potentially I wonder if that would be an issue and, and an issue um, only to the extent that this judge who was um, obviously carried a lot of merit and had a lot of experience um, leading up to becoming a judge on the King County Superior Court. Um, she had to be identified as a person of color. It wasn't enough to say that we've got a judge of the King County Superior Court here to talk to the one else today. It was that she was a person of color. And that's where that realization first came in. Brian, let, let, just help us put it in context and put yourself back in that 1L class. Just, I don't know, it, it may be a bit unfair. I know, you know, you're actually coming on to what, 12 years, 13 years practicing now? <laughs> well, I was um, called in that, 2011. There you, okay, there you go. So I'm asking you to cast your mind a bit back um, uh, still, but like how many, like, could you give me a percentage of Asians in your class? Probably fewer than ten in that class. Out of a class of how many? Oh, I don't, I don't remember. Maybe, I think in that particular classroom, which was sort of a theater style classroom, it probably sat eighty to a hundred, which was a proportion of the entire one L class. The one L class was bigger than that, I'm pretty sure, but um, probably eighty to a hundred people in there. Wow. Oh. Um, well, look, look let, let's like fa fast forward to your starting practice in, in the States. Do you, do you notice a difference between, I mean, what, what's fascinating about your situation as opposed to the, the two other guests that will be on this series is that you've, you've had some cross-border experience. You've been an Asian American lawyer, or at least a, a lawyer Asian lawyer practicing in the United States. Yes. And you've also practiced here in Canada where the political cultures around race is, I, I'm venturing to say, quite different. At least when you look at the news, the language around race and business and politics seems quite different than the kind of political discourse we have in Canada. Is that, is that, is that a black-white thing or is there a, a yellow-white thing going on down there as well? Um, there probably is, uh, sort of a majority minority thing. And, and, you know, I'll, you know, I, I don't know if I can extrapolate just from my very limited experiences, but I can, I can say that, um, the, yeah, the, the discourse is different. I, I recall when I was, uh, so I, I, I spent a term of my law school, uh, working for the court of appeals uh, located in Tacoma, Washington. So this is uh, a city about, I don't know, 45 minutes south of Seattle. Um, and I remember that uh, when when I lived there, uh, there was this interesting, uh, <laughs> there were a few interesting experiences I had where I would be walking along the street and a black person uh, would be, would, would approach me. And this has happened on, on a number of occasions. A black person would approach me and um, literally make eye contact, nod in greeting, and hold out, you know, a hand for a fist bump. And and I suspect 
Um, and, and I truly do that this was some sort of unspoken solidarity amongst two visible minorities who are resident in the city, who don't know each other, but just out of some sort of, I guess, both a friendly greeting, but potentially because it was clear that um, I was not part of the majority and neither was the person that was approaching me, that we could have this one small connection. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into the friendly interactions I've had with, with people I, I see on the street, but I, I, I suspect that there was probably something there that I was somehow more approachable uh, as a visible minority and, and somehow we were in that moment together. Interesting. Is that something that, is that a uniquely kind of an American experience or would you say that, that is that, I mean, I guess I'm saying, is that, has that ever happened in Canada or that kind of vibe? Probably, probably not. I don't. I don't think that if I were uh, on on a Translink bus somewhere and I, and I tried to greet somebody, uh, that 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 would be very well received uh, one way or the other. I think for the most part, um, in Vancouver, we just bury our noses in our smartphones uh, and we don't really look up. Um, so so maybe it's an American thing, maybe it's a Tacoma thing, but um, potentially, I, I really do think it could be a minority thing. All right. Cool. Well, let's, 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 let, you know, take you to your, your current situation. Um, I'm going to get to some good news that you just, it sounds like you just recently received, but, but let's, let's, before we get to that, and that's a bit of a teaser for the audience here, but, but before we get to that, let's talk about coming to Vancouver and, and, and working your first associate position here as an Asian litigator. What was that like coming from United States to Canada in a very, again, a very different kind of business working climate? Uh, I think, um, again, maybe, maybe I was maybe I was a little bit naive and maybe because this is Vancouver, it's harder to notice uh, being part of minority. But I don't know if I ever um, fully recognized that, uh, you know, there was there was potentially something different or um, that there was a minority of uh, Asian Canadian lawyers. Um, in, in my first associate, uh, my, full, my first full-time associate position in Canada, um, the firm that I was at was actually quite diverse. Um, and, uh, and, and the firm would actually sponsor uh, a table for things like faculty galas, and um, and I would attend with uh, with with um, you know fellow Asian lawyers from my firm. So again, it wasn't a situation where I ever felt out of place, um, and I I think I was very lucky in that regard. But I think I also recognized that that wasn't necessarily the case with a lot of firms around the lower mainland. And as you pointed out, Chilwin, um, the, the vast majority of firms, especially in the higher ranks and the partnership ranks probably don't have uh, a, a level of diversity that is reflective of the demographic of whether you call it um, the general population of Vancouver or BC or the general population of lawyers in Vancouver or BC. So, I mean, let's, let me, let me just, take the counterfactual just to test this idea a little bit. Um, did it matter that you didn't like, did, did it make a difference? Do you think it would have made a difference or did make a difference to you as you were growing as a young associate that, that there wasn't an a, a senior Asian face that you could, that you felt that you could talk to? You know, that's uh that's a good question. Um, and, and I suppose, uh, 
I, I was lucky that there were a number of more senior uh, Asian faces that I could talk to. And, and, and looking back, I don't know if um, my, my personal career development would have been different um, absent that. Uh, I, I suppose that here in, in Vancouver, I mean, I'd like to think that it doesn't make a difference. I'd like to think that um, that it, it's not the color of your skin that matters. It's not it's not your your background or ethnicity that matters. That it's it's purely merit based. Um, but more and more, um, I, I have to question, just statistically speaking, whether it does matter. And and to the extent that it does, I wonder how much of that is. Um, is, is rooted in sort of the historical progress of Asians in the legal profession. And, 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 and by that, what I mean is, um, I, I just recall that uh, I, I was at a faculty gala, this was a number of years ago, and um, it, it was at that faculty gala, in, it was either in conversation or in one of the presentations that was given at that gala that I learned surprising to me, um, as, as somebody who didn't really pay attention in history class back in the day, um, it was surprising to me to learn that um, Chinese people specifically were not allowed to be lawyers in British Columbia until essentially the mid-1900s. And that realization to me, I think, if you take that and you kind of extrapolate to today, um, however many generations uh, of lawyers that are, I guess, biologically possible since um, the, the 1950s. Um, statistically, does that mean necessarily that uh, the junior associates today have a much lower probability of having you know, a father or grandfather or some relative who is a QC or a judge or a prominent partner in a prominent firm um, is that what that means? And if it is what that means, then potentially does that mean that if you um, are of Chinese ethnicity, uh, you potentially, or at least statistically, are at a historical disadvantage um, because the likelihood of you having blood relations um, that potentially can guide you and and um, help the advancement of your career, um, that likelihood is potentially lower simply because of that historical fact. Well, let, let's drill down a little bit, right? Because part of the, again, what I've been, I'm trying to explore in these series is, is that, you know, you look on the solicitor ranks, the business lawyer ranks, and you, you do see a bit more diversity. I think, I don't think that's unfair to say especially in the major firms when you've got like express creations of like the Asian Asia Pacific practice and, um, and, and all that kind of stuff, or, or, you know, you see lots of Asian lawyers, particularly in the banking and the real estate kind of uh, sectors. Interesting to me, not so much securities, but you'll see them in, I, I mean, again, not, I'm not done a, a scientific study here. I've really just done again, that thing where I'm kind of filtering through various websites. Right. Yeah. But, but, you look at litigation and it's a marked difference in in the makeup of lawyers who form the litigator ranks versus the business law ranks do you agree like am i looking at the right thing do you sense that as well or do you do, or and if you 
I don't know. What do you? What, how does that shake you? I wonder if that's that, that's probably true. If you look at a, a sample um, of corporate commercial litigators, um, I, I wonder if that's true. If you expand that to um, family law litigators, I, I don't know if um, there might be more diversity in those ranks. Although I guess that in in a lot of instances. Um, corporate commercial uh, litigators might belong to larger firms, whereas family litigators can belong to sort of any size of firm. Um, so I, I don't know if that that's necessarily, you know, causation versus correlation. Is it a is it a corporate commercial thing or is it a big firm versus a small firm thing? Um, where where does that uh, line get drawn? And and to the extent that there is a disparity uh, in terms of the number of Asian litigators in a particular field versus the the general uh, population of Asian litigators, um, I, I wonder why that's the case. Is it because Asian litigators are drawn to a, or Asian lawyers are drawn to a particular practice area, or is it because they are not um, part of the firms that have practice areas that um, they're interested. I, I don't know. I mean, there's there's sort of a number of factors here. But Brian, you know what? I should say. I don't mean when I say but. I don't mean that in a critical way. I I guess may, maybe I'm what I should say. And I should say and. And Brian, I guess though it's interesting as you as you're as you're talking. I'm thinking I, I agree with you, right? Like it, it it may be just correlation. But the things that you were correlating to, is it a big firm thing versus a small firm thing? Then it's like oh. Does that suggest that there are fewer, fewer Asian litigators in big firms than there are all small firms? Well, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. Is there uh, a dearth of, of 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 lawyers in that kind of high high street, house street cachet, you know, uh, QCs that predominate the corporate commercial bar versus the more kind of main street suburban practice family law bar? Again, it, let, I'm not saying that's true. But let, if that's true, well, that's also an interesting observation, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that you're saying any of these things, but the fact that you're making these questions, any one of which though would lead to a aha moment, right? Where it's like, why, why would that be? And the fact that any of them are possible suggests that there is some something weird about how it do. Do you think that Asian litigators self-select? Maybe is my question. Potentially yes, and and I, I wonder if if that's true um, to the extent that there is self selection. I, I I would be curious to know if that occurs more so with somebody who might be a sort of first generation immigrant versus uh, or or versus a first generation Canadian born versus second generation. Does does that self selection dilute as a as an individual? Um, becomes, you know, for lack of a better term, further and further removed from the motherland, right? Right. Um, and, and, and the reason I ask that, um, sort of my, my personal experience is, uh, in, when I was practicing in Seattle, uh, I worked at a firm that was kind of, its location was sort of at the very edge of what you might call the downtown core of Seattle, um, essentially bordering uh, Chinatown. Of Seattle, right? Um, so right. Uh, the the lawyers in that firm were 100% Asian. 
um, the employees 100% Asian. It was a small boutique. Uh, and the clients were primarily uh, Asian. I would say, you know, 90, even 99% Asian. Um, and uh, I, I recognized that that was a firm by its very location, by its very marketing uh, to the predominantly Chinatown business community. Uh, that was where it targeted its advertising. Um, it, it was self-selecting. It, it was interested in attracting Asian clients um, and it only had Asian employees. And, um, and of course, uh, but that's not a criticism, it was an observation. And, um, and so I wonder if there is sort of a certain sense of, well, this is the culture I know, at least from, from the decision-making standpoint. I mean, I was, I was an associate who didn't have the ability to make these decisions, but I wonder if there was some conscious decision-making, and there probably was, that you know, this is the culture I know. Um, these are the people that can relate with me. This is the community that respects me um, or respects us as a firm. So why not target your resources to that community? And inevitably, you generate, uh, you know, a, a client base that's predominantly Asian. The clients want to speak with people who speak Chinese or you know, look like them or whatever. And it's, it's a process that feeds back on itself. And, you know, before you know it, you know, 20, 30 years later of, of running a firm uh, like that, you have a firm that has self-selected for um, Asian lawyers practicing in those specific areas of law with that type of clientele. And if you're able to do so successfully, and that firm was able to do so and, and still does, um, then potentially the question is why change a successful business model. So again, it's an observation. It's not a, I don't apply any judgment as to whether that's a good business business model or bad business model. But what I'm simply saying is um, there might, yes, so to your, to your original question, there is some measure of potentially self-selection involved. And if that self-selection leads to a potentially successful business model, there isn't a whole lot of incentive to change. Um, and then you end up with potentially these disparate pockets of these are the Asian litigators. These are the you know Southeast Asian litigators. These are the South Asian litigators. And they cater to their clientele. And these ones cater to those clients. And, and the real estate litigators deal with, um, or not the real estate litigators, but the real estate solicitors. Um, they have, you know, their Chinese clients and maybe they market to clients in China who want to purchase a home in Vancouver. Um, and, and so on and so forth. So maybe there isn't enough incentive to change either. Let me turn to, I guess, uh, some happy news that you've just gotten. I understand that you're going to be joining the, uh, the, the shareholder ranks uh, of, uh, of Owen Bird, which is your current firm. Yes, what, I've been invited and I'm, I'm really thrilled to be, uh, to be invited to be a shareholder. I mean, I mean, I know the, the idea of one joining, the, being invited. Sorry, I, I should correct myself. You're right. We, you haven't joined yet, but you've been invited um, to to join the partnership, uh, or in your case, the shareholdership, um, uh, is sort of kind of that traditional step in a in a in a lawyer who goes into the private side of the practice. Mm -hmm. Do you do you have any particular? Does that change what you see as your career goals? specifically as an Asian lawyer or does it does being Asian 
put any additional um, feelings of responsibility or anything like that for, 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 for what your plans are? If you had asked me the same question, uh, you know, maybe a number of years ago, I probably wouldn't have seen being Asian um, as imposing any additional responsibility on on myself. But I, I think that um, over the last couple of years, being more involved with FACL, um, having had conversations like these ones and coming to a realization that um, as, as, you know, the, the very premise of this podcast is there is a, a dearth of Asian litigators, um, especially in the downtown uh, law firm community, um, that has kind of given me the realization that this is something where um, I will hopefully be able to uh, use as an opportunity to um, mentor and, and guide uh, future Asian litigators who will hopefully become very successful, successful in their careers. We're going to switch to switch format for a second, but before I do, I'm going to ask you a very important question. It will define define you as an Asian litigator. Wow, that, that's deep. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I'm using the Kent a very bad Cantonese pronunciation, but I'll, I'll I'll anglicize it for our anglicized listeners, including people who speak Chinese badly like me. So, Sulumbao or Wati are. So again, for those who are not familiar with the words, those like steamed pork dumplings or pan-fried pork dumplings. What's your what's your preference for a comfort food? Sulambao. <laughs> All right. Why why Sulambao over over pork dumplings? I, I don't think you can compete with the just the the, the hot soup that is inside ah. that dumpling. Like like the, there's there's a skill to making it. But there's also a skill required to eat it so that you don't spill hot soup all over your face. Um, and so you, so it, it kind of encompasses uh, sort of, I guess, everything that is that is Asian. You got you to work hard. You have to have a skill level to get there. Um, just, just like sort of the, 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 the stereotypical Asian tiger mom. You have to, you know, you got to get your A plus um, on your report card. Um, so... So yeah, it's it's almost symbolic of uh, you know what what being Asian is, and you know you, you can't eat it without without using chopsticks properly. You can't you can't eat a ceiling bao with a fork, right? You, you would poke holes in it and spill the spill the soup all over the place. Um, you can't eat it with a spoon, at least not by a spoon itself, because the bottom of the ceiling bao will like stick, and and again you know you you, you wreck the soup because it's gonna it's gonna get all over the place so the only way to do it is you have to have the requisite level of chopstick skill and so it is almost not only a wonderful comfort food it is a rite of passage of being an asian to be able to pick up a siulong bao and put it in your mouth without burning yourself without spilling the soup without breaking the delicate skin of the siulong bao like siulong bao is it Brilliant! I love it. I love it. That, that's great. Thanks for that answer. Um, we're gonna we're gonna close off with two two kind of specific segments that we have on this on this podcast. Um, we're gonna do the three the three by two, um, three questions, maximum two minutes each. And I will be I will in this podcast. I'm gonna maybe potentially in, interject if I if need be to keep you to the two minutes. Um, uh, just but the three quick quick questions. 
and they're going to test your skills because they're super deep questions, but you're going to have to try to find pithy ways to respond. <laughs> so right. given, given, given what we've talked about, if you can't, you know, if you believe it or not, like we've been going for 28 minutes here. Um, so synthesizing all of this in three by two, the first question starting now is, does any of this matter? Go. I probably would have said no a number of years ago. And uh, I think in an ideal world, the answer would have been no, um, that there really should be no considerations uh, in, 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 a, in the legal world where merit is determined by your ability to reason, by your ability to research, by your ability to be creative, that, that skin color, ethnicity, um, background really should have no place. But um, the, the more I uh, appreciate that these are, this is the real world and, and um, you know, people uh, subjectively, subconsciously um, sometimes make decisions um, based on uh, the fact that you're Asian or the fact that you're not Asian, um, it does matter. And it's important to have these conversations. And, and even beyond that, um, the more I appreciate that your personal subjective experiences um, are what make you a better lawyer, whether you have experienced adversity, whether you have um, been lucky enough to um, not experience that adversity that maybe your peers have experienced. Um, either way, it's important to recognize that adversity exists and people um, have, have different life experiences and it's your life experiences that make you a more creative and um, understanding and compassionate advocate for your clients. Um, two minutes. Should it matter? Not does it matter? Should it matter? Uh, yeah, I, I think it should. Um, uh, yeah, as, as, as I said, uh, it, it is these experiences, it is, it is um, these questions, it is um, these understandings and acknowledgements of uh, these issues that define who we are as, as advocates for our clients and help us better understand the world. Um, I think that as lawyers, it is um, part and parcel of not just our jobs, um, not just our employment, but really as part of our ethical duties as counsel um, to advocate for justice. That That is really the underlying purpose of having lawyers in society, I think. So without, without getting too philosophical and, and high and mighty or anything like that, um, all of this should matter because it is conversations like these and an understanding of issues like these that help us advocate for justice in society. Last question. Will it matter in the future? And, 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 and thinking specifically about the, the many kind of uh, law students and Arlington students and, and kind of newly minted associates uh, out there, will topics and issues like this matter in their careers? Yeah, I, I think it will matter in the future, um, whether it's this specific topic or it is about whether it's about being Asian or it's just about race in general or it's about any other multitude of reasons that people get discriminated against. Um, it's it's discussions like these that um, that kind of drive us towards a more equitable and and equal and just society. Um, I, I think that uh, you know if if you look at what discrimination meant 30, 40, 50 years ago versus what it means today, um, 
it has probably changed. I think we've become a society that has become more aware of these issues, potentially more tolerant of some, and potentially even accepting of others. But um, as humans, we are flawed. And, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't want to get too philosophical here, but I think it's just part of human nature to seek out differences and, and judge people for differences. And the more aware we are of that, the more we can try to avoid those situations. And uh, to the extent that uh, those types of discriminations come from things like skin color, ethnicity, hopefully we'll have driven a lot of that out of society um, in the future. But I'm sure, unfortunately, as part of human nature, that discrimination of some form will still exist. And it's conversations like these that will help us, um, I guess, build a more equitable and just society. Thank you for that. That's a fantastic, fantastic uh, three by two. So I appreciate that. Um, before we just go into our last segment, I, I did want to... Um, I did want to ask one more kind of more provocative question. Has, has being Asian ever made a difference or was material, the fact of you being Asian been material when you've been in the kind of the core uh, exercise of, of being an advocate, like let's say in the courtroom itself or in, in a mediation. And it doesn't have to be a serious thing. Maybe it's a funny thing. I don't know, but, uh, but, uh, has, has that have you has that ever become an was that ever an issue where you went huh that happened because I'm Asian? Yeah, I think um, there, there's actually been a number of instances uh, where now I, I speak a bit of background. I speak Cantonese. Um, I would say conversationally or almost fluently um, to the extent that I can I can have a full on conversation with somebody in, in Cantonese. I don't know like technical terms and things like that, but um, I can make do. And so there have been a number of occasions in my career where uh, there has been a Cantonese translator, um, either for myself, uh, like for my client or for an opposing party. And um, I, like very early on in my career, I was in court and uh, it was actually my client who required a Cantonese translator. And it was absolutely the worst thing to have a Cantonese translator uh, do a live translation in open court. Because here I was um, in court trying to explain my position. I was I was brand new, um, you know, kind of nervous in, in court um, and in that court for the first time too. And here I am trying to make my argument. You know, Your Honor, I am so and so, and um, you know, this is my position. And literally, right, like standing right behind me was the interpreter. Like, I'm like, please, like, I'm trying to talk here, like, stop interrupting me. And then I realized that, you know, you're just repeating back and, and to try to focus on making an argument and being an effective advocate, but at the same time, having your words parroted back to you in a language that you understand is absolutely the worst feeling ever. So, so that was one instance where, um, I guess being Asian like literally made a difference because I think it affected my advocacy um, negatively just a little bit that day. Um, but in another instance, I, I was um, you know a number of years ago in, a, in an examination for discovery, and uh, I, I know that um, the I was uh, asking questions uh, of the opposing party, and the opposing party had a Cantonese translator, and the Cantonese translator uh, essentially got an essential aspect of the testimony wrong. And I was able to get on the record and um, I guess essentially immediately challenge the, interpreta uh, the interpretation of what 
the opposing party had said. And of course, the interpreter, um, after a little bit of pushback and a little bit of debate, ultimately agreed with me. And I was able to get the admission that I wanted on the record. So being able to understand and speak um, multiple languages can be um, sometimes a blessing and sometimes a curse. That That is awesome. Um, you know, I, I came here in the 70s and, um, you know, frankly, didn't for a variety of of, of reasons, never picked up the language. So even though I'm, I'm Chinese myself, I, I, I can sort of understand Cantonese conversationally. Um, it, it takes a lot of work. But for, for me, when I'm in court, and I'm in court with, again, like you, a witness and a translator, the translator, it's just more of a buzzing in my ear because I actually I don't fully understand what's being said, especially since I don't quite have that level of fluency. But I can absolutely see how it, it, this eerie feeling of having your words, but it's not your, it's your words, but not your words, yeah. but you can understand it. So it's like someone talking over you, right? It's not just some noise in the background. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Well, Brian, this is, um, we're coming near close to the end of our, of our time together. The, the last piece that I'd like to do in this uh, podcast is, is the soapbox soapbox question. So you get to go in your soapbox for, for just a couple of minutes. And I'd, I'd like you to talk to, Talk to young Brian, young Brian Chang coming up, about to be an associate. Um, and what what would you say to him about what it means to be an Asian lawyer starting off in his career? Brian, hopefully I'm still I'm still considered young Brian, but uh, just a little bit older than a number of years. Really young, <laughs> really young. young Brian. Um, I would say that. In, in litigation, well, in law generally, but especially in litigation, there are a lot of new experiences. And those new experiences can be challenging, they can be scary, but what I think a new lawyer should recognize is that every time you feel a little bit of trepidation, feel a little bit of nervousness about an experience, that's actually a good thing. Um, it's not a negative thing. It's not a sign that you are incompetent. It's not a sign that you're not ready for this. It's simply a sign that you're trying something new. And over the years, I think I've learned to embrace that feeling, whether you call it something as serious as fear, or you call it just, you know, the butterflies in the stomach or a little bit of nervousness. Um, I, I've come to realize and appreciate that when I get that feeling, it's it's not a sign of um, ill preparedness. It's a sign that I'm growing because I'm experiencing something new and I'm going to get better and build my skills because of that upcoming experience. And so to a certain extent, and, and this sounds kind of cheesy, but I, I almost um, embrace that feeling now. So, you know, when, when you're about to walk into court and you don't know what that cross-examination is going to look like, what that witness is going to try to throw at you, um, embrace it because you're only going to grow through that experience and you're only going to become a more effective advocate as a result of what happens that day. Brian, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, Brian Chang, uh, lawyer, soon to be shareholder at Owen Bird Law Corporation. Uh, uh, Brian, this is just awesome. Thank you for all that you do um, with with FACL, leading FACL, being a model and a mentor at FACL. If you check out uh, the FACL BC website, FACLBC.ca, uh, you'll, you'll see opportunities to be a leader like Brian and mentor a young lawyer, uh, another Asian lawyer. Um, 
Brian, thank you for all of that, for all that you do. And thanks for joining me today and sharing your experience. Thank you, Chilwin. See you later, Litigator. Joining us on this podcast. We would love to hear from you and to have you learn more about Facl BC. You can visit us on our website, FACLBC.ca. That's FACLBC.ca. You can learn more about us, uh, what we stand for, uh, our upcoming events. Check out our new documentary project. And we also have a fantastic mentorship program that connects senior and uh, junior uh, Asian Canadian lawyers uh, in British Columbia. So again, that's facultybc.ca. Please check us out on our website.